0: Welcome to the Joan shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org.
1: Welcome. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. It is my great pleasure to welcome... One of our family back, uh, Michael Tomaski, uh is a former Shorenstein fellow and uh, former, uh, you know, executive editor of, uh, of uh, American Prospect. The American Prospect. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the main thing he is now—I mean, he's author of, of a number of books. He is one of the most astute and most outspoken political commentators in the in the country. He is described, I find on Wiki. Wikipedia as Ultra liberal. I don't know whether you're aware of that. Uh,
2: I wasn't. You know, a, a friend made me aware of that, and uh, and I had a, an associate uh, go in and take out that ultra. Well, apparently they is, got it back. Uh, they
1: put it back yeah. in. Uh-huh. I think I think yeah. Rush Limbaugh put it back. in. Yeah, yet.
2: I think so. Well, this is one of those Wikipedia tennis matches that just never ends. I guess well, they could certainly do worse. Uh,
1: the uh, the thing is that what he is is a goad and in a in and in a, in a source of irritation to both Republicans and. Democrats and the Obama administration probably has almost as many complaints about him as, uh, as the Republicans do. His blog on uh, the Daily Beast is something that I never miss. Whenever I go to that website, if there's something by Michael, I want to see what it is. He is a really a thoughtful person about what it means uh, to have a president like Barack Obama at this particular moment. And his theme for today is effectively to compare Barack Obama to Ronald Reagan, the kind of iconic, deal-changing president for the Republicans. Is Obama uh, comparable for the Democrats? I don't know. I'm (laughs) sure Michael will tell us. Michael, we're very glad to have
2: you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Thank you all for coming. It's so nice to see old friends around the table. I was a fellow here in 2003 and uh, just had a terrific experience here, and uh, I'm sure you can corroborate that it's a terrific experience. And, um, and I, I had a great time here, and there's uh, Tom Patterson, and, um, and learned much while I was here. So I'm always so happy to come back here uh, to the Shorenstein Center. Um, <clears throat> Uh, yeah, ultra liberal isn't w- right. Before I start my talk, I, ju- I just kind of want to say that I, I you know, um, I was on Geraldo's radio show the other day. I do that every couple of weeks, and I get to. I, I, it's a plum assignment. I, I, I debated Ann Coulter on there uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she uh, she tried to throw me off my game by complimenting me. I, I wouldn't have it. <laughs> I wouldn't let that stick. Uh, she referred to something I wrote that she liked, and I asked, "Now, when was that?" What piece? And she mentioned a piece. I said, "Okay, that was about three years ago. I suppose it's okay. If you can like one every three years, <laughs> but if I, but if you like any more than that, I'm in trouble." Uh, but no, I'm a, I would call myself a Humphrey liberal. If that, uh, there are many people around this table to whom that still means something, and I hope the younger ones, it means something to you too. Um, so that's not quite ultra liberal. And yes, I have. Given the White House, the Obama White House, some stick from time to time, and uh, I, I'm sure that particularly during the 2011 debt crisis, uh, they, I was not someone they were pointing to as representing their uh, their line of argument or point of view in the media. So, you know, I think it's very important a few times a year to to step out and, and you know where you can find a place to criticize. Um, a Democratic administration, if you're a liberal columnist, uh, if any of you are planning on being liberal columnists or conservative columnists, if it, you know, <clears throat> look for the opportunities to, to give honest and tough criticism of your side uh, and do it. Um, it will help you standing a lot, I think. So now, let's just get to the question. Uh, you know, I'm going to disappoint you. My answer is not yes. <laughs> um, my answer is I don't know. Just like Alex's answer, but um, but I want to talk about what the, the what I think are the central and important things going on in 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 Washington politics today, and I want to talk a bit about Obama and and Reagan, and I, I suppose the case that I am making is is a case that um, to cut to the chase, that Obama can be has the potential to be because of certain. Skills of his, because of certain things he 's done, and also because of certain changes in the political culture and and the broader culture that he is somehow emblematic of but that he didn 't necessarily cause or create, uh, he does have a chance to uh, he does have a chance to be that kind of transformative president within the different um, parameters that exist today that didn 't exist then. Uh, when, by which I mean, of course, that you can't, uh, as polarized as the country is today, um, uh, you can't force that quick and dramatic a realignment of American politics. But but I think that I think that he is, I think that we might be able to say that he is presiding over a kind of rolling realignment. But. Um, but I want to touch on other things as well, and I, and I asked Edie to print this out, so when she first emailed me to ask me for a title for my address, which was, what, two weeks ago exactly, the 12th, I said, well, here are a few. Is Obama the Democrats' Reagan? How will history judge Obama? How will our polarized politics ever end? Can the Republican Party be salvaged, and should it? <laughs> and is our political system too broken to fix our problems? My talk, and how long should I talk, by the way?
1: Oh, 20 minutes.
2: 20 minutes, okay. Well, 20 minutes isn't a great deal of time, but I'll try to touch on all these things because they're all important and they're they're all related. Okay, (laughs) Okay. I'll take 23. Ronald Reagan, of course, presided over an immediate uh, realignment, a very quick and dramatic realignment of American politics in the 1980 election, Uh, And um, realignment, as most of you know, I'm sure is a specific term. It's it's not just a fuzzy word, it's a specific term in political science that means that coalitions have dramatically shifted, voting coalitions have changed, Uh, 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 priorities have changed, and, and a new politics has emerged and uh, political scientists say that the only realignments that we've had in recent American political history have been in 1932 and 1980. And I don't dissent from that view. I think it makes basic sense. Uh, The Roosevelt Coalition frayed beginning in the 60s, but basically held until 1980. Um, And 1980 was dramatic. I'm sure many of you, many of you, were watching the election night returns as I was, and you saw one, not only Reagan (coughs) winning 40 whatever states it was, but uh, just all those senators tumbling one after the other. Birch Bayh down, John Culver down. Who else? Who else? New Governor Frank Church. Church. Yes, yes. All of them down. Twelve. Twelve. Republicans, conservative Republicans, not like Jack Javits, you know, 12 conservative Republicans taking over from people like Frank Church. Astonishing. Astonishing night. Well, we're in a different political situation in this country now, obviously, and, and you know, it's not possible we uh were 250-50 although it's not exactly 50-50 now is it it's about fifty-two forty-eight, but but <clears throat> we're not in a situation where that can happen um <clears throat> but uh, uh and there was a lot of discussion in 2008 as to whether it was a realignment election and I, either this was some overexcited liberals i i think uh, of which i'm happy to say in retrospect that i was not one uh, and, I, and I have proof, I wrote in the New York Review of Books right after the election, uh, that, uh, you know, realignment, well, we'll see. You know, we'll see. Uh, it's, it has the potential to be a realignment over the course of the next couple of elections, but it depends on what the Democrats do with this majority. And, and you know, it's, I, I didn't see a major coalitional shift of the sort that one saw in 1932 or 1980, uh, so you know I think that's still where we are. We're, it's it's a potentially a rolling realignment, but the potential is real, and uh, and uh, the potential is real for a few reasons. Number one, uh, a number of dramatic shifts have already taken place, and and this this can't be denied. I mean, we did. Uh, okay, we just in January had the first tax increase in this country in in twenty exactly twenty years, uh, the first time that uh, any Republicans, first time that any Republicans voted to increase any tax since 1990. Let's just dwell on that fact for a second. Some Republicans voted uh, um, to uh, increase uh, taxes when George H. W. Bush was president, in what in what they call the Andrews Air Force Base deal. And ever since then, you know, maybe occasionally a fee, a user fee, maybe occasionally buried inside some bigger bill, uh, um, uh, you know, a small, small tax increase that would hit a small percentage of the population. But a broad tax increase, no Repub- not a single Republican voted for since 1990. So Obama got that to happen. It wasn't a very big tax increase. It wasn't a very it, – it, it's, it's actually substantively, some substantively somewhat dissatisfying. That he had to go from a $250,000 uh, level to a $450,000 level, but he did get a bill. So that's one thing that happened. Healthcare is another thing that happened that obviously is a pretty huge deal. Uh, and uh, as we see it implemented over the next few years, uh, I think we're going to see uh, that it's going to become, as a lot of liberals predicted at the time, now that it has withstood apparently withstood Supreme Court scrutiny. They're still trying to bring lawsuits, but but it's apparently constitutional. Um, uh, we're going to see um, health care sort of just seep into the into the <laughs> bloodstream of of American politics and American life and and there's going to be a point at which there's no choice but to try and make it work. And Rick Scott, I think, recognized this. And Rick Scott recognized, as he, the governor of Florida, who signed on to the Obamacare provisions, uh, for the most part, last week saw that you know, also that he couldn't turn down $3 billion federal dollars, <laughs> and, and uh, he's, he can read polls, and he's behind in polls right now to Charlie Christ, who has uh, become a Democrat, and who, at the last major poll in Florida, was ahead of Rick Scott, 53 to 39. So... Um, So the health care business, very transformative, the health care bill. The Dodd-Frank regulation, again, um, transformative. Now, all these things have something in common, which is very important. Um, They're all historic. They're all, from a liberal point of view, dissatisfying in a certain way, because they all fall short of what the liberal constituencies who supported Obama would have wanted. Uh, but they all set in process a change that over the years could, be, could prove to be very dramatic and, and should prove to be very dramatic and, and should prove to be pretty transformative. So, um, you know, it's not like in this day and age uh, with something particularly as complex as health care, as complex as financial regulation, and there, was a, there were a lot of shortcomings in that bill too, goodness knows. Uh, uh, from a liberal perspective, but um, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, but um, but they are setting in, in motion um, a transformation of American political culture uh, that is certainly something that Obama gets credit for and something that I think will probably last uh, even if there's a Republican president next time. The specific Reagan comparison is sort of like this. When one compares someone to Reagan, what exactly do you mean? What exactly I mean is that Reagan, most of all, of the things he did, he shifted the center of American political gravity to the right. To the right. My right. Um, uh, I think Obama is shifting it. Back to the left. Um, now, uh, this is happening for reasons that, as I said earlier, are in part unrelated to Obama. Um, <clears throat> it's and it's ha- and one of the big things is is the failures of of uh, the Republican Party and of conservative governance under Bush, <coughs> which is still pretty fresh in a lot of Americans' minds. I mean, if you you see polls, they still occasionally ask. Um, whom do you blame for the financial problems more, uh, Bush or uh, Obama? And Bush is still the culprit by wide, wide margins. Um, and, it, and, and the Bush episode is, is an important one in American history, I think, for this reason. Uh, the modern conservative movement uh, came to life in the mid-1950s. The National Review, Bill Buckley, uh, uh, that's, that's when the movement started. Um, they didn't gain power until 1980, uh, and so the first experience that most Americans have had of conservative governance in power was the Reagan experience, and most Americans would say that those years were pretty good. You know, I might not, but uh, but most Americans would say that those were pretty good years. Your average sort of not terribly committed in one way or the other voter. Uh, so people had a good experience of conservatism. <laughs> um, but obviously, in the Bush years, they did not have a good experience of conservatism, and your average, not very committed voter, would say that was a horror show, and and uh, and that enabled, uh, to a considerable extent, Obama to win, and uh, and conservatism, right now, five years after Bush, uh, has not. Moved beyond those years and has not <clears throat> corrected those years and has indeed contrived to go even crazier, far crazier than it was while Bush was president. Uh, so, this is getting to some of my other potential titles for my talks now. For my talk now, uh, but this is this is very important. I want to talk about this for a bit, and it is is related to Obama's legacy. Uh, this, the condition of the Republican Party now to me, the central fact of of American political life today is the hyperpartisanship, the, the historically unique hyperpartisanship of the Republican Party, and I really do think it's historically unique. Um, uh, and I've written about I write about it constantly. I get sick of hearing myself sometimes because I I, I face a paragraph and I'm staring at the screen and I'm thinking, huh. Oh, I've made this point 400 times. How can I make it differently? How How can I add some fresh, you know, throw some fresh Tabasco sauce on top of this stale piece of meat? But I try, and I soldier on, and I do it over and over again because I think it's the most important thing, the most important problem facing the country. And a lot of people don't really understand quite the nature of it and the severity of it. Um, a lot of people in Washington certainly don't understand it, don't want to understand it, want to pretend it's not a problem. I wrote about this just today if you want to look at my column from this morning when you get back to wherever you're going back to. Um, but today's Republican Party is is extreme in two ways. Uh, the first is its policy positions and most people acknowledge that and understand that. Um, so I don't really, feel that I need to talk about that too much. But, but the second one is less discussed, but is as important or perhaps more important. And, and this is the idea of politics as constant, constant warfare, politics as war by other means, that the Democrats are not the other party whom we sometimes, whom we disagree with and need to, you know, however grudgingly negotiate with. The Democrats are the enemy. And, and they have to be crushed, and this is a mindset that has set in with the vast majority, of I wouldn't say vast majority actually, but I would say majority, of the Republican voting base. Um, and I think we all know where it comes from. It comes from Rush Limbaugh and his imitators, and it comes from Fox News, and and so on and so forth. And and it makes it makes the idea of compromising absolutely impossible. And what we have right now, I wrote over the weekend, I think I used the phrase, a malevolent symbiosis (laughs) uh, between uh, the Republican politicians in Washington and, as I said, not the vast majority of the Republican base, but I think the majority of the Republican base. It's interesting if you look inside. If you look at polls about how Republicans feel about things, they're not all unreasonable. You know, they're not all extreme. You know, half of Republicans, more or less, would support an assault weapons ban. What, what? Uh, would support an assault weapons ban, uh, according to polls. Two polls that I saw last week, about half. One said fifty percent. One was in the forties. Um, so it's not all Republicans, but it's the most extreme. Portions of the base. Let's say the more extreme half or so of the base, um, uh, which is uh, vastly overrepresented in Washington D.C. So, in other words, you've got, you know, about half of the Republican base, which is that's 15% of the country. You know, maybe less. I mean, there was a poll last week. Do you refer, do you think of yourself as Democratic, Republican, or Independent by Pew? Uh, Independent was 41, I think. Democratic was 32, and uh, Republican was 22. Um, Democrats are all usually about 10 points higher, but but this was a unique low for Republicans. So I'm talking about half of Republicans. I could be talking about as little as 11 or 12 percent of the country, but they have that 11 or 12 percent has half the representation in Washington, half the representation in Washington, almost half the representation in Washington, and that's and that's really the central problem in American politics today. And Barney Frank, I was just talking with Jonathan, <coughs> my friend Jonathan Moore there about this, and um, so he just heard it, but he'll hear it again. Uh, Barney Frank gave a terrific interview with New York Magazine about a year ago. And uh, and uh, he was asked about the inability of Congress to compromise and work things out. And uh, he said, yeah, I know. He said, "My, my constituents, my constituents ask me why we can't compromise more? And I look at them and I say, exactly how much compromising with Michelle Bachman do you want me to do? <laughs> and and they say, well, all right, point taken. But they're all Michelle Bachman. And he says, no, actually, now that you mention it, half are Michelle Bachman and half are terrified of facing a primary from a Michelle Bachman. And and that's that's where we are. And that's that's we're just we're just <coughs> stuck. And so when I read. You know, people writing about the sequester situation that we're facing now, and saying that if only Obama showed leadership and if only Obama proposed, so you know, like David Brooks this morning, a well-intentioned column, I guess, but but I think but I, I, it just it, it's denial, it's just complete denial. Um, you know, they are not going to compromise with him. They want to crush him. You know, th- this is the, this is the mindset, and <clears throat> Obama can't do anything to bring these folks to the table. Now he is meeting apparently in three hours with Lindsey Graham and John McCain, and Lindsey Graham and John McCain, who have not been his best friends these last several months, uh, as we all know, apparently are willing to say, "We'll re- we'll con- we'll think about revenues if you put some real entitlement juice on the table." Okay, now that's a negotiation, right? That's an actual negotiation, okay? Those are the two big things. Republicans want spending cut on entitlements. That's their long game. You know, cut programs for the poor, yes, they want that, of course. They don't like poor people. But they really want entitlement spending cut. Um, And Obama wants revenues. So this is the big. This is the big heavyweight match. This is this is the title uh, bout on our card here: entitlements versus revenues. So I say, preliminarily, not knowing that much about it, good for Graham and McCain because at least this is a negotiation. You can talk about this. You can talk about, you know, how much change CPI is worth in tax revenues. You can talk about how much, uh, you know, uh, raising the retirement age to 67 for some categories works. Categories of workers is worth in tax revenues. At least you can debate these things, and then you can, you know, slice it in half and come up with a deal. That's politics. That's legislating. That's governance. That's how it's supposed to work. But the rest of the Republican Party is just stone cold against any kind of revenues. You can't negotiate now. I will. I'll be interested to see what emerges from this meeting today, and whether. Uh, Graham and McCain have any juice with the rest of the Republican Party in Washington on this point? I suspect they do not. And so I think we'll go nowhere. So Obama can show all the leadership, he can give all the addresses that Bob Woodward wants him to give, and and you know extend all the olive branches that David Brooks wants him to give. It won't matter. The Republican Party is immovable, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. They want him to be Chamberlain, basically. They want him to propose Republican things, those because those are the only things that the Republicans will accept. So, this all relates, and I, I will finish up in five minutes or so, this all relates to the question of Obama's legacy, Obama's transformative potential, uh, uh, in, I think, what are obvious ways. He really can't be a Reagan-like figure, until he beats them, until he beats them. Now, I'd rather sit here and say, believe me, believe me, I'd rather sit here and say, it would be wonderful if they could all meet halfway. I'd really rather have that. In 1965, nearly half of the Republican senators and members of the House voted for Medicare, nearly half. 50%, I believe exactly, of senators, and 44 to 45% of House members. Now, so people say, also, people say, you know, why can't Obama be like Johnson? Why can't he be like Johnson? Well, He can't be like Johnson because Johnson was dealing with a very different Republican Party. That's why he can't be like Johnson. It's not because he's not six foot six and he doesn't grab people around the lapels. Yeah, he doesn't do that. He could probably use a little bit more of that. But Lyndon Johnson was dealing with a Republican Party that was like on the same planet that he was. (coughs) This Republican Party. for the remainder of Obama's presidency, as long as they control the House of Representatives, is going to just set up deadline after deadline after deadline after deadline. That's what they're going to do. There's another one coming, as you all know, on March what? Who knows? 28th. Ilana knows, yes. 28th, 27th, 28th, by which they have to pass new continuing resolutions or there might be a government shutdown. So there might be another crisis. If we get through this one, my prediction for this one, without having, believe me, any particular special inside knowledge, is that I think the sequester will kick in and will last for a few days or a week or something like that, and then Congress will <coughs> see the results and people will get complaints for the, from their districts and they'll come back and they'll pass a bill saying, we repeal the sequester and we, and we put this off for another couple months. And, and they can do that. They can do it as many times as they want. So <clears throat> I think that's probably what will happen with this. But then there's another deadline, March 27th. Then there's a debt ceiling deadline coming again in May. Then there's going to be another continuing resolution deadline, and another and another. And I'm sure their strategy is simply to say, or to think, well, we're just going to keep, we're just going to keep coming up government, and you know. Making sure people, as long as people think Washington is dysfunctional, they'll blame at least part of it on Obama, you know. And you (coughs) saw, it was interesting, you know, during the 2011 debt thing, um, Obama's standing went down, but a Congressional Republican standing went down further, but I don't think they care, you know. I, I mean, I think they're willing to lose a... (laughs) <laughs> it's like a, you know, cobra eating a, t- it's there are two animal, I don't know, I don't have the exact image. I need a couple minutes to think about it, but they're willing to lose a leg as long as Obama loses an, a, a foot, you know? Um, so I think they're just going to keep pounding deadline after deadline after deadline so that Washington just looks like a horrible mess and they'll benefit in the long run in 2016, they think, mm-hmm. from Washington looking like a horrible mess. Obama needs to, and the Democrats need to, uh, above all else, and I'll conclude on this point, um, above all else, uh, make sure that their people vote in the by-elections. Because the history of by-elections, as I'm sure you all know, is that Democratic constituencies don't vote in as big numbers. And that's exactly what happened in 2010. And – and, you know, it's, it's what happens almost every time in off-year elections. And uh, historically, as you know, in a sixth year, a president really usually doesn't do very well. Bill Clinton did. because of unusual circumstances because the Republicans were acting crazy. Uh, well, these may be similar unusual circumstances. But the Obama White House and the Democratic National Committee just have to make sure that people vote that people understand that the stakes are the same as they are in a presidential election year if people vote there's a possibility and i don't think it's a great possibility it's a fairly slim possibility because of gerrymandering and the way districts are drawn but if people vote if democratic constituents vote there is a chance that the democrats could recapture the house and how much they'd be able to pass Open to question. I realize that I haven't even talked about guns and immigration, and maybe we can, um, and climate change. Maybe we can uh, get get some questions about that. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I don't know how much they'll be able to pass, but at least they'll be able to fend off the constant putting up of these deadlines, of these phony deadlines, and they'll be able to govern a little bit. And finally, they'll be able to put off what I still think is the inevitable impeachment charge, which is going to be about something and is going to come around the pike if they control the House in the last two years. So uh, yes, I think Obama can be a transformational President. I think he's already halfway there. Uh, I think he needs to beat the Republicans in his second term uh, to make it complete.
1: Uh, let me start. <clears throat> I would say in journalistic terms, you've buried the lead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> impeachment? Yeah. Where did that come from? And why do you imagine that he will be charged uh, with that they'll bring an impeachment action against him?
2: Because it's just their DNA. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way, it's, you know, it's just what their base will be. I mean, be do, you, do for you
1: really think that that's a, st- a strategic plan?
2: It doesn't have to do with strategy. It's just—it's just they've got to slake that base. They've got to slake that portion. Well, of the as, base.
1: as we as we do move forward to twenty fourteen, yeah, um, what you're describing is a series of situations in which the Republicans are going to be defeated. They're going to be shown as 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 obstructionist, and then. Either they capitulate, or the economy takes a header, or people start losing jobs, and all of a sudden these people in Tea Party areas mm-hmm. are going to be hearing from other people as well as yeah. the Tea Party people. Right. Uh, that sounds to me like a completely, utterly insane, losing strategy for a party. So what? I mean. And I'm, and I'm talking about it from the perspective of, of the Tea Party people of the you know Mitch McConnell's and others who care about these strategic these strategic uh, plans yeah. how can that make sense for them to lose again and again and again and again
2: well it doesn't you're absolutely right but I think they think they can win I think they think they can win the sequester fight actually And, oh. well <laughs> we're going inside the minds of people that we don't really understand here. I'm not sure John Boehner thinks he can win, but I think Michelle Bachman, I think the Tea Party people, they have a different definition of win, right? (laughs) They represent districts where the vote is very conservative and, and where, you know, the priorities just aren't the same as the priorities in the rest of America. And you know, I think that you know that there's just an emotional architecture to this movement that you know if if Washington says we lost, we probably won. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, one of the things that uh, I'd like to have you focus on uh, is is uh, is not so much the policy questions themselves as the politics of this, which is really what you were talking about, Steve. I'd, I'd like to just give you the first crack to to uh, weigh in on this.
3: Well. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I hope you're right that Obama is a transformative figure. Right? Uh, it seems a bit at odds with who's sitting on the other side of the table. Um, uh, I mean, I, it, it, it seems to me that uh, what's happening is, and I don't disagree, I, I, I think the, the Republicans understand that um, King can be crazy in Iowa and still win because people, they can yeah. hate Congress, but they still love their congressman yeah. and, or whatever, and they have enough money, and you get Citizens United throwing money around and, so i got to believe they don't think they're going to lose the House, uh, and gerrymandering is, is, a, is a case to be made, and the Koch brothers understand that, and they're throwing money at state So all that, and, and they know that, and that's yeah. not to. But my fear would be that Obama hasn't shown, uh, one, that he is willing to defeat uh, uh, the, the Republicans, uh, uh, and I take nothing away from health care and the reform that he's trying one. to try to have, but, one, I think there's much pressure on the Democrats or on the Republicans. I, to your point, that Obama has to win. I think you're right, he has to win, but, but I wish he were Lyndon Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, because Lyndon Johnson, I think, knew how to win and play the game better than Obama did. Yeah. My, my fear, though, is is that Obama's playing uh, with the wrong deck of cards. Um, he's playing immigration, It's uh, so it's a race issue. He's playing guns, and so it's a, and, and they're, they're important issues. but. Uh, the report out two weeks ago that said almost a third of the American working uh, uh, American workers are making $11 or less, 84% of American workers say they're paycheck to paycheck I mean, they, if he doesn't do something to turn the economy, my fear is that no matter what happens with sequester, and I think these guys yeah. are just going to stall and stall and stall and if they can show government doesn't work um, history says they they should do well in 2014 um, you know yeah. they probably pick up seeds, they you know they don't have to fear that yeah. and with with the money, and then 2016, they have to look and say there's a legitimate shot, we take the Senate in 2014, the numbers yeah. work for us, right. there's a legitimate shot, we take the White House, particularly if the economy is not doing very much. And so I would argue that it's tough for, and I would I'd ask you as, as a question, how can Obama be transformative, um, whether it's like Reagan or whatever, unless he literally delivers something... Um, and it doesn't seem like he has that makeup, and they seem to have enough cards to say. But we don't care. Yeah. We di- we'll shut her down. We don't give a yeah. damn. We'll still win. That'll make government lose, and then you lose in fourteen, and you lose in sixteen, and we're yeah. back to where we were. Yeah. yeah. And so, how do you become transformative right. in that, in that you, climate? Yeah,
2: you make a lot of great points. I mean, I think that <clears throat> um, uh, you mentioned that Obama's. You know, I mean, he's not. He's not a perfect human being. He's, he's got a lot of flaws, and I think he overestimated his ability uh, when he first got the job uh, uh, to, to get Republicans to cooperate. Obviously, uh, he uh, he made bad mistakes. Uh, I mean, his you know he lost his coalition for three of his first four years, more or less, or he lost significant chunks of his coalition. People came back together, and people came back to him in 2012 to reelect him. But you know, there you remember that there's all these reports on NPR about the lack of enthusiasm among the Democratic base and so forth. So yeah, he's gotta be a different kind of figure this time. And and Pluff and Axelrod and whoever it is would have to give him very different advice. And and he has to yeah, he has to he has to be a different guy. There's no question about that. And don't um, you think
3: his window is the other problem so short. Yeah. Uh, he's gotta almost do it this year. Yeah. And Certainly by 2014, if not before those elections, because if he loses in those elections, it's it's probably over anyway. It's kind of lame duck. So his window is is closing
2: round.
1: Is there any reason to think that the Democrats are simply going to sit by and wait for that election to happen in 2014 without doing what you described about treating it like a national political campaign? I mean, they've demonstrated an ability to do very well electorally. Uh, Are they going to marshal that skill again?
2: I, yes I mean I they they understand they understand that this is imperative um, I talked to some people in the DNC I know they they understand that they need to do much better um, but you know whether they will I mean it's just that they're, they're, they're the, the machinery isn't accustomed to coming out you know every mm-hmm. two years it's only accustomed to coming out every four years so that's that's turning a big ocean liner around just very quickly just uh, you know on the question of the economy this which we could spend, you know, all afternoon talking about, that's a real hard one because, you know, again, you know, people are just on different planets. I mean, you know, you would think that it would be possible to get a small infrastructure bill, you know, but it's it's just absolutely impossible. Any stimulus, any stimulus is basically impossible at this point.
1: I was asked to tell you that you should use the hashtag... <coughs> that we have on the wall over here. I forgot, but I have now remembered. Um, Let me ask for students first, and then we'll get the rest of you. Yes.
3: A quick challenge and a question. Um, Instead of Democratic constituencies showing up in 2014, wouldn't you uh, rather need more of your non-fundamentalist conservative Republicans to show up in their primaries? And secondly, uh, just something on what you said, Um, almost four years exactly ago, um, someone I'm sure you know very well, Bob Kuttner, was throwing around the FDR label a lot. Yeah. Why do you think your comparison is better, and why are why do you expect to not be disappointed <coughs> the way he very clearly is?
2: Um, yeah, you know, um, I do know Bob well, and um, I don't agree with his reading of the of that situation. I don't think that Obama ever quite had a Rooseveltian moment. Um, you know, Roosevelt had twenty four percent unemployment, uh, and also, incidentally, uh, a. A, uh, a, a median household income in March of 1933 when he took office. Median household income wasn't actually measured yet. It wasn't measured until after the war, but I asked some economists, like, to give me their best guess, a median household income of about $17,000 a year, as opposed to today's 50 thousand. Uh, so that was a pretty different country in a pretty different situation. Twenty-four percent unemployment gives you a lot of room to experiment, uh, uh, which, which Obama's situation he just didn't have. We just, uh, you know, we, in, retro, in retrospect, we had just enough of a crisis for people to be panicked, but not enough of a crisis for people to be open to big collectivist solutions. Students. <clears throat> okay. Retro- I didn't I didn't really answer his first question, actually, Alex, about <clears throat> Well, I, I, about about voting, um, I think the biggest problem in off year elections traditionally, historically, has been the drop off of liberal constituencies African American voters, youth voters, uh, excuse me, and, and single women. So I think it's probably more important that the Democrats try to keep that pushed. Out. Yes, we had
1: someone down here. Yes. Yeah, i uh, just sort curious about um, 20, 30, 100 years from now
2: what do you think we'll be talking about as its legacy in terms of whether he was a liberal president or on the liberal side of moderate. And I think as you alluded to, a lot of his policies, you know, stimulus with very tax cuts designed to appeal to Republicans, Yeah. Healthcare reform, we know it didn't to come, but a lot of the policies have been really fairly bipartisan and moderate yeah. ideologically. Right. Um, but obviously he's perceived liberal, and then there's the, these long-term long domino effects potentially of transforming the system. It's
3: crazy,
2: think that Yeah, you know, well... Um, you know, I, it's, 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 it's not going to be like Roosevelt in, in, in that state interventionist sense, by any means. And, you know, that kind of liberalism is, is off the table for now in this country, uh, uh, unfortunately, in my view, but um, for a lot of reasons that, um, that, well, have to do with the way democratic interest groups operate in Washington. I think, but that's a whole other conversation for another afternoon. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, his changes in some ways are more about the political culture and the culture than about hard economics. And, you know, he's just like, you know, coming out in support of same-sex marriage before an election, that was a very brave thing to do. I mean, I really give him credit for that. And if he does manage to pass an immigration bill, which I think he may, through some kind of sleight of hand, uh, which I'll get to if anybody asks about it, um, you know. I, I, I think these are things. I mean, I, I think, I think the the weight of all of these things will will have historians say that he certainly shifted the center of gravity back to the center left.
1: Richard.
0: <clears throat> um gave you a copy and I commend to the class reading this Lewis Manan Louis Manan review in this week's New Yorker review of the Roosevelt administration, the consequences for politics. Um, I think that we need, and you're perfectly capable of doing this, of going down below national opinion polls and national elections and thinking about why state level is where these battles are going to be fought. In particular, three states Florida, Texas, and Virginia it seems to me are crucial to the future of the Obama administration. And for us to talk about national performance misses the game that I know that the Obama people already are conceiving and are deploying people for, because the sons and daughters of my friends are being sent from the northeast to Texas and Florida as we speak Mm -hmm. in preparation for what is a very serious, very expensive, very detailed ground game that is going to be fought in key states. And to understand that is really important to understand whether or not you think that Obama is Abraham Lincoln in 1863 or George McClellan in 1863. And the narrative in Washington is McClellan. We wish he were Lincoln. But Lincoln, frankly, in 1863 didn't look like Lincoln in 1865 or Lincoln in 2013. Right. Right. And well, I'm not Bob Kuttner in 2008, I'm also not Bob Kuttner today with whom I had dinner last week and mm. who is quite as dark about Obama's legacy as yeah. he was sunshine bright right. uh, in 2008. And I think that, you know, where I want to engage you is on this idea that he hasn't learned lessons. I, I think the evidence is he has learned lessons. Susskind was right at the end of the Confidence men. He's having great difficulty deploying those lessons learned. And that part of the struggle is a narrative that focuses back on the, the strength of this Republican coalition, when I think another way of looking at it is, in fact, how much of it is an old Democratic coalition that was at the heart of the Roosevelt administration and the Roosevelt successes. Yeah. And that this issue of the Republicans setting out, the Republican <coughs> leadership and a part of the Republican base setting out to destroy government, whatever the hell that means, because that's not what they're about is, in Obama's estimation, and he may be wrong, but I actually am tilting toward him right now. He's going to blow up in their faces. I think that he will outmanage them right now on the narrative of sequestration. And I think that when he does that, he's going to, he's going to be like Grant, not McClellan, and he's going to advance one major battle. And I think then the next showdowns are going to be fought battle yeah. by battle. This is all ground game. Yeah. There is no wall, There is no hail Mary pass to be thrown by the person.
2: How about Sherman? Can we get a Sherman out well, of you Well, know, <laughs> Some of us would prefer the be Sherman to teach. You know, as
0: my friend Tim McCarthy said, when South Carolina was flying that Stars and Bars Confederate state flag, he said, time to make it north to south zero. Yeah, um, and, and, uh, yeah. Some of you don't recognize what I just said. <laughs> you, know, you are young here. So, um, so I, I want you to engage not at this national opinion level, not at sort of the Washington insider, what we think he's doing level, but to carry it down yeah. to how this battle is going to be fought in the next two cycles because I think the success in, t- in, in, in these next two elections based on that strategy is going to tell us more yeah. about several things, including yeah. this is Obama.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> But it's not
0: going to come as quickly. You're right. It hasn't come as quickly It's Rosenberg, yeah. but we yeah. can talk about that yeah. why it's an in-app <clears throat> comparison. I
2: think. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here. Uh, there, is this, there is this organizing effort that was – there was just a story about it in the New York Times on Saturday um, <clears throat> that the White House is launching – they're going to try to raise millions and millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. To do grassroots organizing around these issues, around immigration, around gun control, uh, and around climate change, uh, and around the country, and they're going to try to do it at the local level, and uh, it's pretty unprecedented. And uh, and you know, the Times was raising some questions, and probably appropriate questions about you know what kind of access, (laughs) yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah, exactly, (laughs) about access and so forth. and, And bundlers, you know, get to meet Obama, you know. Three times a year, or something like that, but but basically, it's an unprecedented political effort from a White House uh, to try and you know do during governing time what
4: mm-hmm.
2: what campaigns only, usually only do during uh, campaigning time, which is to go out and knock on doors, uh, identify people, knock on doors, and say, "You support gun control? Yes, I do. You support comprehensive immigration reform? Yes, I do." take this action, take that action, take that action. Uh, that's the only the only conceivable way to get an assault weapons ban, right which I think is possible. I actually think it's it's I wouldn't put you know short odds on it, but I think it's possible if this if this um, if this uh, uh,
1: organization is doing its job. And would this show itself in your opinion in the twenty. 20- Fourteen congressional elections. Yeah, I think it could. I think it could very well. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. So, just to clarify,
4: you think the only way to get an assault weapons ban is at grassroots, like knocking on doors, asking people to call their congressmen?
2: Yeah, you have to identify the exact congressional districts where you think you can flip people. Um, so it takes that research, and uh, and I'm sure that research has been done. You know, the, the the gun control groups are sitting on that research. So you so you get to know. Uh, you know the, the the forty congressional districts where you can flip, where you have the potential to flip a vote, and then you get to know the the seven senators whose vote you have the potential to flip, and you then you build up the constituencies in those forty districts and seven states, and you build up a constituency that cares as much about an assault weapons ban as the other constituency cares about not an assault weapons. So well,
0: sequestration is <laughs> part of this gambit because yeah. he's going to bargain back. For certain rewards for certain districts in certain states as part of this, I mean, he, he's looking for leverage right now the sequestration to
4: negotiate with those seven senators and those 40
1: right. members. Right. Tom.
4: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a lot of stuff here, Michael. I uh, uh, I think I'm with Steve a little bit. 2014, gun control immigration and the like, uh, the centerpieces of the next 18 months or so. That's probably not where you'd like the agenda to be focused. Yeah. Heading into 2014. But actually, I have a question about the realignment, right? And the whole sort of notion, which in some ways is going to figure into this in terms of uh, how we look back on this, maybe not from 2113, but maybe even 30 years from now. And uh, usually when you have realignments, you have a a nice conjunction of kind of the policy realignment and the demographic realignment very fundamental to the New Deal and mm. retirees and the movement of people into the Democratic Party around programmatic kinds of issues, right? And there was a demographic realignment that attended the Reagan Revolution. Right? Yeah. Um, this one, it seems to me, you have both going on, but they're loosely connected. Uh, they're not as tightly connected as they were before. But in some ways, the demographic realignment is a... For some of the elements, there's a rejection of the Republican Party more than it is an embrace of the Democratic Party. Yes. Young, young people, for example. Uh, Hispanics. Uh, you know, they're going to be Democratic, Democratic, but they're not going to be two to one if the Republicans weren't closing, right? so very clumsy, right? Right. Um, so, how do we think about that? I mean, th- this period of realignment since the 80s has been a lot of fits and starts, and we kind of changed the story almost with every election, right, as to who won the last one, right? And, yeah. uh, but what to me is an interesting question is whether you can sustain a demographic change, a shift around the parties. If you don't have those kind of strong kind of policy anchors that tell people why they got there and why they ought to stay there. Right? Yeah. They, they seem weaker this time than
2: mm.
4: either in the eighties or in the thirties. I yeah. I don't know whether you
2: I don't know. I mean yes and no, Tom. I mean I think, you know, if I'm uh, you know, for, for, for gay people, I I, don't, I think the policy anchors are pretty apparent.
4: No, no. I mean, there are some, but
2: there's, it's um, a little harder with others yeah. to make the connection. But now, for Latinos, not quite yet, but I do think so. I'll, I'll hear. So here's my theory and prediction about about how immigration reform might pass. I think that the I think that the Senate will probably pass it, and uh, and I think in the House it's going to be much harder. Uh, I don't believe all the stuff about Republicans seeing the light on this. I'll believe it when I see it. I won't believe it until I see it. But I do think that they might do this. Um, uh, uh, Boehner would break immigration into two pieces. There would be basically an enforcement piece of legislation and a path to citizenship piece of legislation. And the enforcement, of course, will pass with ample Republican support. And then the path to citizenship piece would be more complicated. And Boehner will have to break again the Hastert rule and let it come to the floor without a majority of Republican support, and it might pass with 190 Democrats and 40 something Republicans, 30 or 40 Republicans, mm-hmm. and so uh, immigration reform will pass, and Republicans will try, Marco Rubio will try to stand up and try to take credit for it. But, but I think that you know people will understand that that it happened, um, you know. With largely Democratic votes, so I, you know, that's that's an important policy anchor, obviously, f- uh, for the demographics uh, to match up with with the uh, with the voting patterns. But but you know, I don't know, and I, and I think you know, for for I think healthcare is another one. I think you know, I mean, if to the extent that single women, young single women, are a huge Democratic demographic, which of course they are. I think that uh, I think healthcare is is a big deal there too, and some and a lot of the things that have been done uh, with regards to to contraception and coverage in those areas. What I, about you know, climate
1: so, for a young? young
2: man? Yeah, I, I, climate is a big one, and that's that I think is going to be very very, that I think is probably the hardest thing to do. I, th- I think. Even more than guns, I think, climate is harder to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, th- I feel that the, the record is the batting average on those policy anchors isn't too bad. Yeah? Yes.
0: Yeah. I have a question about another kind of realignment, and that is um, having grown up in a political
4: family in Michigan where my parents were Eisenhower Republicans, um, what appears to be the battle for the GOP soul, what yeah. do you have to say about that within the party itself? It's a
2: pretty one-sided battle. <laughs> you know, it's that there, there's. I don't think the other side is really battling for the soul. I think the other side is largely trying to pretend that this isn't really a problem. I mean, there are there are no moderate Republicans basically in in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Susan Collins, I guess you could say. Mark Kirk, I suppose you could say. There are maybe three or four pro-choice Republicans in the House of Representatives. But is it possible, careful, as Richard said, no, to go we'll granular a
3: bit in terms of what's happening on the ground? Do you have any sense of
2: that? Well, the thing is, those, those moderate Republicans happen to be the most vulnerable ones, because they're the only ones from, from, from purple districts, right? So they're the most likely to be beaten. So if they're beaten, well, yay, you got another Democrat. Uh, but, you know, you've made the, the Republican caucus more conservative, more uniformly conservative and more ideologically consistent. You know, I don't think, I wrote over the weekend, I took to task by name some of these responsible conservative thinkers and pundits and intellectuals, some of my uh, counterparts on the other side, like David Brooks and Ross Douthat and, and a few other people. Uh, <clears throat> because they just ignore what has happened to their party, and they won't write about it, and they won't take it on. David Frum will take it on, and I, I commend him to you, and I, I, even, I wrote that I'm sure this will make him wince to, to read praise for me in this context, but but David Frum talks about this stuff. He talks about what has happened to the Republican Party and this fanaticism and how it, it, it has to change. Um but these other guys won't take it on, so so they're not. This is not, you know, this is a boxing match where one guy is still, you know, hasn't put his gloves on yet and is still sitting in the locker room. Peter, um, I kind of agree with Steve that Obama's window is very tiny here. So forgive me for talking about 2016 already. But what, you know, looking at some of these governors um, and Joe Biden and Kirsten Gillibrand and Klobuchar and all these people, do you see any? Um, Interesting competitive dynamics emerging there. Um, Are they all kind of just moving directly to the left? Are there things that they might cherry pick from Obama's accomplishments and some things they might leave behind? I'm just
0: interested in what do you think the Democratic Party will stand for in 2015? Oh, the Democratic Party.
2: Um, Well, you know, this all just all hinges on you know who. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) And, you know, I, I mean, if she's in, it's just a Clinton. Race—that's all. You know, I don't—I don't see that anybody. If I were Martin O'Malley, I mean, I might—I might do it for a while just to get my name recognition and and be in debates in Iowa and stuff. But I wouldn't think seriously that I had a remote chance. So, so if Hillary's in, she's—I think—just quite obviously the nominee. What's her—what's
0: um, her vision thing, though? What would Hillary run?
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Back to the good old yeah.
2: days. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Just you know, the prosperity of of, of, of the '90s and and you know, you really? know, innovation and modernization. She's going to run on the prosperity of the '90s. Well, I think she. I, I think to a good extent she will. But I think. But I think she'll. I think she'll. You know, she'll run more on like biography and destiny yeah. than on a program, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's understandable in a certain way. Um, because it's going to hook more people, um, but uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, I guess, you know, is it is it Obama's party now? Even even if Hillary Clinton is the nominee, mm-hmm. yeah, in terms of like the broad par- priorities, probably so. I don't think she's going to, I don't think she's going to depart from Obama's position. Would you care to handicap the things. likelihood
1: that she will be the candidate?
2: I think slightly more likely than not
1: and who would be your number one alternative?
2: I don't know. Um, I don't think Biden really would get, you know, the money and so forth. Uh, I guess Andrew Cuomo.
1: The Democrats don't really seem to have a good number, too.
2: Have you seen no, Andrew Cuomo campaign really. before? Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, saw, I saw him campaign in the in the campaign that blew up in his face. I covered the campaign that blew up in his face. I just a picture when, like, when him like, South yeah. Carolina. Yeah. No, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's a uh, um, complex uh, fellow. Um, but the Republican side is more, always more interesting to me in certain ways. And I think, you know, the, you're going to have somebody who represents, I'm the same Republican, which is probably Christie, if he runs. And then you're going to have, like... I may seem Republican, too, but he's really not, like Jindal. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, but it's going to be, you know, just...
1: <clears throat> Jeb Bush?
2: Yeah, well, Jeb Bush, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, Jeb Bush, it, it still may be too early for a Bush. I don't know, you know. It's, but, but. Well, unfortunately,
1: it's too late for us to be able to continue. We've got a time. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thank you all.